Okay, Romans chapter 9. Let me read you from verse uh, 22 just to give us a little bit of context of, of where we have been already. I'm going to go from 22 to 29, okay? What if God, what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he called not of the Jews only but also of the Gentiles as he says in Hosea one of the minor prophets he says I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved, who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So this this chapter here of Romans is is teaching us, giving us conversation, illustrating uh, big examples so that you and I can understand what about Israel. When, when we read Paul's Gospel and when we read about how it is that the righteousness of God has now been made manifest to the sons of men, the righteousness that is required for eternal life has been shown to men, and it is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4, the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, is what it says there. David believed, and David says, How blessed is the man to whom God will not impute iniquity. The gospel of faith, and by faith, being imputed or being granted the righteousness of Christ, this is the gospel of eternal life. And so it's natural. It's natural for people who knew their Bibles and for people who knew the Jews to wonder, well, what about the Jews? This means most of the Jews aren't saved, but God promised to save the Jews. He promised Abraham that all of his children would be saved and all all those who had trust with Abraham would be saved. The nations would be blessed through Abraham is what his promise said. So, look there. Look at the first couple lines of, of chapter 9. Listen to how Paul begins the chapter. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. He's got this strong, strong desire. And he uses that phrase, I wish I could be accursed. And what he means is, if, 
if maybe somehow I could I could be accursed and, and, and that be exchanged for the salvation of the Jews. He longs for the salvation and for the hope of the Jews. And he knows the Jews are not coming to God by this message of faith. And so he's explaining to us here in chapter 9, answering the question, why isn't all of Israel saved? Look at verse 16. And he makes the statement, he says, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. When he says in verse 16, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, in, in a context of Romans chapter 9, who is he talking about? He's talking about the unsaved Jew. The unsaved Jew who has been born literally a relative of Abraham. And Abraham's promise was, Abraham, you and all of your offspring shall be circumcised. And God said, I will bless you. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. This is the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise. And the Jews who knew this promise, they believed that if they were children of Abraham, that they should be saved. But after they've been listening to Paul's gospel, or if they remember even the teaching of John, or any of the other apostles, they would know that most of the Jews are not saved. And frankly, most of the Jews wanted to kill the Christians. And so, he makes this point. And one of the really shocking things in Romans chapter 9 is when he makes these statements like, it is not of him who wills or of him who runs. It's not according to the one who is making the efforts to get himself into heaven. And the Lord tells parables about people who believe they are on their way to heaven and they don't get there because they don't understand how it is they become to be at peace with God. They don't understand the necessity of faith and a genuine love for God. And he uses this phrase several times. It is of God who shows mercy. In other words... If, if any one of you decided you wanted to go to heaven this afternoon, literally we're just going to go to heaven, how would you even get there? And you don't know. You don't know where you make the first right turn. You don't know where you make the first left turn. You don't know where you go straight for 500 miles. You don't know how to get to heaven. The Lord Jesus is the only way to eternal life. And the Jews and you and I need to understand this. We need to understand that it is by God's mercy that He would reveal Himself to us and that He would show us the way. So what is the worship of those who have received mercy? This is one of the sub-lessons in this chapter. What is the worship of those who have received mercy? You see, last week we read quite a bit about those who have received mercy and those who have not received mercy. We've read about objects of God's wrath and we've read about the objects of God's mercy. It says, what if God wanted to do this? What if his objects of mercy saw his wrath in action? What if God's objects of mercy see God's wrath in action? 
What is this supposed to cause his objects of mercy to think and feel? It's supposed to give them awe. It's supposed to give you thanks. It's supposed to make us wonder, Wow, Lord, why would you save me? Another strong feature in this chapter is the illustrations that are given to us that we could understand with some pictures of what he means when he's explaining these things. The first and the most obvious one having to do with Abraham and Abraham's two sons. Abraham has actually the first son named Ishmael, but he is not counted Israel. And these are illustrations that teach you and I that God is forming the reality of history according to election. So who is Israel out of those first two children? Who is Israel? Isaac, the child of the promise. The child of the promise is the, one of the earliest building blocks of the nation of Israel. And we see that in that illustration. And we're also given another illustration there in the, in the identical context is Isaac also has twins. Two, two sons born on the same day. An amazing, wonderful thing that, that he has two children. But his wife, Rebecca, was told that the older would serve the younger. And then, one of the, probably one of the most shocking sentences in the whole New Testament, when he says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Jacob being the younger. Jacob being the unnatural one to be the heir and have the right of being the, the carrier of the family blessing and of God's blessing as an elect son. And then also he mentioned another illustration that shows this very, very strongly was in the illustration of Pharaoh in, uh, in verse 17. Verse 17 said, The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? Why did God raise up Pharaoh? Think about this carefully. Think of the testimony of scripture here. Why is this king raised to power in Egypt? In around the year 1400 B.C. Why? Why is this king raised up that God might show his power in him? Is what he says. That Pharaoh, the firstborn son of that Pharaoh, dies in the final plague on the Egyptians. All of the wealth and all of the prosperity and all of the future of Israel is destroyed over the course of those plagues. Why did God raise up this Pharaoh in order to demonstrate his power? to Egypt. So, for example, if we keep our minds and our hearts in the context of what is being taught, an object of mercy, one who has even just begun to believe in and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, you see that it is God's mercy that has even made Him known to you. Why do you look at the Lord Jesus with, with a, a, a gram of hope in His forgiveness and righteousness? Why do you look at Him that way? Why do you look at the Christ as a Savior, but the, the King of Egypt looked at this God as, a, as an evil and a mean God, and that, that Pharaoh set himself against this God? 
you must learn to see that you are an object of mercy if you have begun to have affection in your heart for this God. You are an object of mercy. And when you see what had been done to the nation of Egypt, when you see what had been done to these people who would not relent in their resisting Him, when you see the degrees of wrath unleashed against them, it makes you realize you the mercy you have received is not a light mercy. It's not a little mercy. It's not a small thing. Look at what you as an object of mercy have been spared. What have you been spared? What has not been given to you? These are the purposes of, of these illustrations here. So the scripture here in these passages, it teaches us and it asserts to you and I also that God is just in His sovereignty. This is a very big and important lesson because in addition to these illustrations, the chapter is asking questions and the questions have to do with things like this. God, if, if, if you did something like that to Pharaoh, that just doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. There are these questions here in Romans chapter 9 that Romans chapter 9 answers for us. And so it's so helpful to see what is God's reply to these kinds of things. And, and verse 22 and verse 23 teach us that the objects of mercy will know the fierceness of God's wrath and the greatness of God's mercy on the vessels of His mercy. That is why these things happen. That is why that this would happen in this way. See, Israel as a nation and as a people at large, when, when we're reading through the Gospels, the stories Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John recount for us, Israel wanted God's favor. Israel believed they possessed God's favor. They believed God's smile was on them. And in some ways, and listen carefully here, in some ways, Israel is like the professing church of today. Israel, when, when the Lord Jesus arrived, they were a people very much like the millions of people in America who claim to be Christians. And many, many people in America who claim to be Christians do not rightly understand and, and truly believe and are, are born again. They, they hold to a form of godliness is one of the, the passages in the New Testament, but denying its power. There are many examples you might read about even in the book of Jude. Jude warns the Christians that are being written to there and he says, beware because among you, among you already, among you believers are wolves, people in sheep's clothing. Beware of them. And you, you who know the true gospel, you who are disciples of the Lord Jesus must contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. It's the letter written to the Christians through Jude. So the Jews had a strong desire, a strong will to, to go to heaven at the end of their lives. And they, they had a strong anticipation that, that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would save them. And he would be the king, as had been promised to King David, as had been promised to Adam and Eve, as had been promised to Abraham. But most of Israel, they, they made a mistake about their birthright. Most of Israel believed that since they were Israel, since they were Jews, that of course God favored them and God was going to be saving them. So in some ways, in some ways, I don't want to oversimplify this, but, but 
the Jews believed that they were born saved. The Jews believed they were born saved. And so remember, of course you remember when, when, uh, when, when Nicodemus came to speak with the Lord Jesus in the evening and, and when the Lord Jesus says, don't marvel, Nicodemus, when I tell you you must be born again. Nicodemus was utterly stymied. He did not understand what the Lord Jesus meant when he said that. Nicodemus was a very, very highly trained, well-educated Jew, and he did not understand that he needed to be born again until much later. Actually, Nicodemus does come to saving faith later in the Gospels. They were born saved. If you ask any Jew, do you love God? And they would say, yes, we love God. They, they know the great commandment. They know the lesser commandments. But they went about loving God and they went about serving God in their own mistaken way. And so when the Lord Jesus was asking him the question, have you not read? We are alerted to how important it is for us to understand what the Lord taught and what He said. Even when He taught parables about people who thought they were going to heaven and weren't going to heaven. Like, for example, the, the parable of the, the ten virgins. Remember in that parable that of those ten, only five of them really were prepared at the Lord's return. The Jews had very hard hearts to their Messiah very similar to the hard heart of Pharaoh. They had hard hearts. They weren't good listeners of truth. They weren't humble listeners of truth. This was the condemnation of many, many of the Jews in Jesus' day. This lesson about God withholding mercy from some is one of the shocking lessons, as I was saying here in this book. It's one of the Bible's most unexpected truths, but it is plainly here in Romans chapter 9. Verse 18, we read, Therefore, He has mercy on whom He wills, and whom He wills He hardens. What does that mean? What is the simple meaning of that? And I think you know what the simple meaning is. We were just talking about Pharaoh. Pharaoh who had been hardened. And then the scripture says plainly that God is just, hardening whom He wills and having mercy on, on whom He will. The question goes on. It's so interesting to see. It's so plain. It's so easy for us to understand. This is the thought on everybody's mind. Look at verse 19. Everybody's wondering. Everybody really kind of wants to accuse God. At verse 19, will you say to God then, why does God still find fault? If God made me with a high, hard heart, then, 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 then I'm hard and, 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 and I'm like Pharaoh. I, I, I'm not soft and believing like Peter or like John. I'm like Pharaoh. Why does God still find fault, it says right here. Who has resisted His will? They know His great authority. They know God has all authority to do everything. And then the answer to the question is in verse 20. Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Or it says something like, you can't talk back against God. You can't, you can't sass God. You, can, you can't tell God that He's wrong or, or unfair for saying what He's saying or for determining to do what He's determined to do. And we get into the illustration of the potter and the clay, of course. 
Will the thing formed say, say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? We, we wonder about some of the depths. Maybe, maybe you wonder about many of the depths. Maybe you think about this with some seriousness, about this issue of predestination that seems so prominent here in this chapter. It's, it's, a, it's a deep teaching. And it does trouble men. It troubles you and I. One of the chief lessons for us to be able to take away and, and to remember, and this is, this is a big lesson in the Gospel, is that God is the Creator. He's the Maker. So as, as the, the Maker of the pots, as the potter has the right to make from some clay these things that, that might be on a, a, a shelf of very useful things, and He might make some other things that are, are less noble things, the Creator has the right to make things the way He wants to make them and to use them the way He wants to use them is, is the, the issue at stake in that illustration. So then the question has to become, and, and this, is, this is a place of some very serious thought for you and I as, as, as people of God. What do we make? What, what are we supposed to think about ourselves knowing who the Creator is, knowing what He's made us for. If He's made you as an object of mercy, if He's made you as a useful thing, how, how do you express the fact that you know you've been an object of mercy? Do you thank God in the evening before you fall asleep, God, you have been merciful to me today. Because you know what, all of you and I, we have moments in our minds where we maybe blaspheme the Lord. We, we, we think thoughts that we know we shouldn't have thought. Sinful attitudes that are nurtured in our hearts. We're struggling with, with some kind of sin. And we know that, that the wages of sin is death. And so when God leaves a sinner alive for a day or two or for a year or for a decade, it's His mercy. And you and I, as objects of mercy, when, when we realize this, it makes us a thankful people. It makes us a people who just says over and over again, Oh God, You've been merciful to me. You've been kind to me, Lord. You've been generous to me. I've eaten good food today, Lord. I've had so many blessings in my life. Thank You, Lord. Objects of mercy express their mercy back to Him and they're a thankful people. So do you understand your Creator and do you understand yourself? You are a creature who has a maker. You are a creature who has an owner. We need to understand this and this is one of the sub-lessons that, that comes out of this text here in, in Romans chapter 9. In some senses, it will be right for you and I to realize that we are helpless before God. We are very, very poor before God. Remember, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, if it's not the opening line of the Sermon on the Mount, it's one of the first lines. I think it's probably the opening line when the Lord Jesus says, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. And, and the chief way to understand that isn't if you have a lot of money or not. 
although they're related. You remember also the Lord Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. How hard is it for a camel to go through an eye of a needle on a scale of 1 to 10? Impossible. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a camel, but I'm pretty sure I couldn't feed it, fit it through the eye of a needle. The Lord, Lord Jesus gave this teaching and, and the Lord Jesus was telling His disciples, this is not in Matthew chapter 5, when His disciples heard the Lord Jesus say, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, then His disciples said, Lord, then who could be saved? They rightly understood what He said. You and I have to have some sense that it's very hard to be saved. Which should turn us into people who understand that starting down the road toward the Lord Jesus and starting down the road of hope and eternal life is a work of His mercy in us. It's a work of His mercy. It's a work of His grace to turn you to Him in your poverty. When He says, blessed are the poor, it means you know you have a spiritual zero to bring to God. Blessed are the poor. Why? Because poor people need to ask someone for help. Blessed are the poor. Are you poor spiritually? Are you poor spiritually? Do you have to go to the Lord Jesus and say, God, I have no righteousness. I am so poor. I am a person where, where sin just keeps living in my heart. I'm poor. God, save me. I must have the wealth of righteousness. I must have righteousness, Lord. I can't find it myself. And when you start thinking like that, when you start thinking, I can't make myself righteous. I can't accomplish what God requires. Then this passage here in Romans chapter 9 that says, it is not of him who wills or runs, but of God who has mercy. That begins to make sense. You begin to make sense that God is the only source of mercy and He is the only source of the riches of righteousness. He is the only source. You are poor. He is rich. And that's the way to understand it. This is how we come to understand the Gospel. Do men know what God's wrath is like? And, and the book of Romans begins saying, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness of men. Go to Ezekiel chapter 5. I was just reading this a, a day or two ago. There's a stunning passage speaking about the wrath of God that He's planning to pour out on His people of Israel. This prophet Ezekiel... He's called one of the major prophets. And major prophets are called major prophets because the books that they wrote are big. The letters that they wrote are big letters. They're major letters. Minor prophets are shorter, smaller books. And so he's told, he's told to speak. I'm going to read from verse 5, Ezekiel chapter 5 and verse 5, and listen for indications of when, when God finally decides to judge these people, how terrible a judgment it's going to be. Listen to how terrible this is. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations. 
and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. They have refused my judgments. They have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of all the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done. And the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. Now listen what he says. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst and shall eat their fathers. Sons shall eat their fathers and I will execute judgments among you. And all of you who remain, I will scatter to all the winds. Now this is a reference to how terrible the suffering for Jerusalem becomes under the siege that finally ends in their ruin and destruction. When a foreign enemy comes to a city like Jerusalem, the only way in is to build a ramp up and over the wall so the enemies can come in and go over the wall unless they can break them down and the walls of big cities like Jerusalem you, you just can't break them down so you know what the bad guys do they come to Jerusalem they surround Jerusalem with lots of bad guys and they wait how long do you think they wait a day years actually they wait years and you know what happens after Jerusalem is stuck inside Jerusalem for a couple of years? You know what happens? They run out of food. They run out of water. They have no access to medicine. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible end. But as you recall, God is just in judging all sinners. And if you think about, even about this judgment that is warned about here in Ezekiel, think about God's mercy when He warns them ahead of time, when He tells them beforehand, look, your wickednesses, your sins come before me and I'm going to judge you for them at any point. Just like the unbelievers of Nineveh repented and God was kind to them and God blessed them and God forgave them. When, when, when a sinner would repent to God, he forgives them. But the people of Israel, the people of Judah, would not repent. But look at that. Look at the terrors of the wrath of God. And, and the book of Romans opens reminding and, and stating the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. You and I are told all of these things before the great day of the Lord comes. We're told these things so we can prepare our own hearts and our own minds before the Lord. So we can have peace with God. We can make terms with God and we can repent and put our faith in Christ and be thankful to God for giving His Christ. What's amazing though is, is that that wrath is promised to a people who know Him and claim His name. They are His people. We're talking about Israel. That He promises the terrors of that wrath too. Verses 23 and, and 24 here 
in back in Romans 9 verses 23 and 24 speak about God's willingness and his desire to make his riches known to his people. 9.23 says, He might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. The calling of God being referred to here, and, and I, I've made mention of this a number of times, and I just want you to keep thinking about this. We, we don't want to get hung up on you and I wondering, am I elect? What if I'm not elect is a question that sometimes people want to wonder about. Here's the call of God. The call of God is when Jesus first shows up in Jerusalem or when John the Baptist first shows up in Jerusalem and, and they begin to preach and they say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When the Lord Jesus tells you that you're a sinner and then you must be saved, does that make you mad at Him? and make, Does that make you want to punch Him? Does that make you want to leave His preaching? Or does it make you want to know Him? Do you want to know the preaching of the Lord Jesus? Do you want to know His, his terms of, of peace and forgiveness? Do you want to be at peace with God? If you've been called of God, this message of reconciliation is sweet to you. We hear the offer of peace and we love the offer of peace. We love the Lord Jesus in, his, in all of His works and in, in the way He talks with people. In His kindness, we learn to love who God is. And we want to be God's children. We want to be pleasing Him. Does His call draw you to Him? The Lord Jesus says, All that the Father have given to me will come to me. But those who won't come to Him won't come to Him because they hate Him. They're mad at Him. They think what He says is crazy talk. They don't like that he says that you must come to him by the narrow way. They don't like that. If you are called the preaching of the Lord Jesus, the person of the Lord Jesus, the way of the Lord Jesus is the way of you and your family. It is the way of your kingdom. And when you hear him call, you come. And you lay down your arms and you repent of your sins. You submit yourself to your new king. This is how we know if we are elect or not. We hear the call of God and we come to Him. We love to know Him. We love to know peace with Him. The passage moves on now teaching us what He says in Hosea. He goes on to explain that this call is not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And this is certainly a, a, a cause of some mystery to the Jews in particular. The Jews were not down with Gentiles being offered eternal life. The Jews had a very difficult time believing that God was going to save Gentiles. There's many, many examples of this throughout Romans, throughout the book of Acts, throughout other texts of Scripture. But when he made this phrase here, 
even us whom he called, not of Jews only, but also of Gentiles, as he also says in Hosea. So Hosea is another minor prophet, and he's quoting this minor prophet to show to you and I that this this idea, this truth that God will call Jews and Gentiles is not a new thing. He's teaching us that this is in Hosea, and we shouldn't be surprised that God is going to call Gentiles. You and I, we're not that surprised by it. We kind of think, especially as Americans, we think we're invited to everything. We think everybody likes us. I think I told you I went to school in, in England for, for a while, many, many, many years ago. And it was, it was embarrassing and it was a shock to me to realize that we are the most cocky people in the world. We, uh, we are the most full of ourselves people. We're the most self-assured people in the world by and large, I won't say it's true of all of you guys, but it's true of most of us. And um, it becomes pretty obvious when you're when you're spending time with people from other countries and from different cultures. We're very, very presumptuous about how how capable we are, how smart we are, how able we are. And so when when Paul writes this, he says, God says also in Hosea. I will call them my people who are not my people. You see, Hosea said, Hosea is a prophet, and this prophet says, God says, I will call them my people. Or in other words, you, you who have put your faith in Christ, you have trusted in the Lord Jesus for your righteousness, He will call you His people. Doesn't it say in John chapter 1 to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Those who believe him, those who believe in his name. I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. All of the places where you know it's been said that they are not the people of God, and that's really literally everywhere in the world, they are not the people of God. But there it will be said, there they shall be called the sons of God. It, Isaiah also says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And, as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord... I'm not quite sure how we pronounce this word, but I'm going to say Sabaoth. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So I want you to think with me now about the concept of a remnant and I want to think about the concept of mercy. The remnant and God's mercy. You see, though the number of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant 
will be saved. This is another answer to the question, isn't all of Israel going to be saved? Paul, if, you're, if your gospel teaching is what it sounds like it means, then Paul, you're saying most of the Jews aren't saved. Here in Isaiah, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Or in other words, a portion of them will be saved. A little group of Israel will be saved. And that will be called true Israel. It's not as though the word of God has been of no effect, he says early in the chapter. There is a national Israel and there's a true Israel. And he makes this reference of this quote in Isaiah, the remnant will be saved. So if you can find the book of Haggai, it's a minor prophet. Haggai is one of the difficult books to find. It's very close to the book of Matthew in the end of the New Testament. The book of Haggai. The book of Haggai is a, a minor prophet who is speaking to Israel before they go in exile. Israel and Judea, both the northern and the southern kingdom, are separately going to be taken away in exile in their punishments. And these prophets come and they preach to the either the northern or the southern, and in some cases both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And so the prophet here, speaking to the nation of Israel, look at verse 14, which is what I want to look with you here. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So, Ezra and Nehemiah are two leaders who are raised up during exile. And they get permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And a small number of people left the place of exile which was in Babylon. And so when we read the book of Daniel, Daniel is in the first generation of those who are taken away to Babylon. And then after the 70 years are up, then a small number of people return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And so we see this, this, this statement here. It's a very interesting use of the word remnant. You see it um, there in verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit. Now there's a, there's a priestly leader here. One of these men is a priestly leader. The other one is more like a, a mayor type of leader or a governor. And the two of these men, um, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Governor of Judah and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. 
The remnant of the people is this little, tiny fraction of those who went away in exile 70 years earlier. There's a little number of people, a little number of people who have hope and have ambition to work on rebuilding God's house in Jerusalem. So there we, we see this, this concept that really is a very, there's more than 60 occurrences of this idea of the remnant being the people that God is speaking about throughout the Old Testament. So here we have this little remnant. So they're called Israel, but it's a little tiny number of Israel who go back to rebuild the Lord's house. You'll know this reference in Matthew 25. I'll show you this picture of a remnant here. Matthew 25 is the story of the ten virgins. The Lord tells this story. I'm pretty sure most of you will recognize it. Verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like Ten virgins who took their lamps, just means unmarried women, who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish, and those who were foolish took their lamps, took no oil, but the wise took oil with their lamps. And while the bridegroom, that is the man who was going to get married, while he was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And all the virgins arose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, there might not be enough for us and you, and so you need to go um, to those who sell the oil and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward, other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And the Lord is teaching this. The Lord says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This is a, a lesson about a few different things. But one of the things that, that is brought out in this lesson is, is there are a lot of people who anticipate going into the kingdom of heaven with our Lord and living forever. But the reality is, is there are many who are not going to be ready. A remnant will be saved. A small number will be saved. Look at 2 Timothy 4.8 with me, please. So this is past Romans. It's past um, the, the epistles, past First and Second Corinthians. Past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then we get into these letters right after Thessalonians. There's two letters to the Thessalonians, and then we get to first and second Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor, he's a pastor of the church in Ephesus. Second Timothy chapter four is another interesting sort of reference to the remnant. Second Timothy four eight. He says, finally, finally, there is laid up for me, the writer of the letter, the crown of righteousness, which is, is uh, 
is the righteousness of Christ. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me. So who else is going to receive the crown of righteousness? The reward of the righteousness of Jesus. Also to those who have loved his appearing. So there are many people who do call themselves Christians. This isn't the only reference to this phenomenon here. Some Christians long for and look forward to the appearing of the Lord Jesus. There's a remnant. There's a small number of people who, who are really looking forward to the return of the Lord in the beginning of the next age. Look now at Romans chapter 11. We'll be there in a, in a few weeks. Romans 11 brings the point home again. Romans 11 in verse 5. Actually, we'll, we'll also read verse 4 because he makes a reference to, uh, I think it's 1 Kings. I have it written down here that I was going to read it to you later. But 1 Kings chapter 9, he's making a reference. Um, go, go to verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. You see that? This is Elijah. And Elijah is actually kind of scared when he's saying this because he thinks he's the only one left. He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets and they've torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. He's just had a, a, a major conflict with all of the false prophets of Baal and with Jezebel. And he knows Jezebel is very, very angry at him and she's a very, very powerful queen. And she knows that, or he knows that she's going to come after him and kill him. And Paul's referring to this incident, and he's going to teach us about the remnant. So Elijah's afraid. Verse 4 says, But what does the divine response say to him? What did God say to him when he was expressing these fears and these concerns? God says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. These verses are so helpful to us. God had left them a remnant. So when we read about a remnant here in chapter 9, verse 27 Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. And then we go on to read just a little bit further here, as Isaiah said, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. What does that mean? If, if you believe you are going to become like Sodom, what does that mean? That means that you will receive the fierce judgment of God and you will come to an end. If, if you're saying we are like Sodom, it means you are admitting your sinfulness and you're, you're saying you're deserving of, of the punishment and the wrath that came to both Sodom and Gomorrah. So when he says this, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. He will finish the work and cut it short, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed. The word Sabaoth means hosts. 
the Lord of hosts. You could write that in your Bible if you want. It means the Lord of all of the the, the entities and, and, and the beings and, and the hosts in the universe. He is the Lord of everything. Why is it that we have a seed? Why The, the seed is, is a re- reference to a life. The seed of life. The seed of offspring and children. Why is it that the, the people have a hope? Why is it that, the, that there is hope that they are not like Sodom and not like Gomorrah? Well, their hope is that the Lord had left them a seed. And so here's how you and I might think about that even in our day. This is a word about Israel's seed who in Romans chapter 9 the concern is there's very few who are hoping in the Lord Jesus. But it says God will maintain a seed. God tells the prophet Elijah, Elijah, you're not the only one still alive. I have preserved for myself, God says, 7,000 faithful, believing men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God is the one who preserves the seed. God is the one who is building the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, as the Lord Jesus had said. The remnant is something of God's making. The five virgins who are prepared for the return of the Lord, if we put that together with what we're reading here, God is the one who is guarding and protecting and providing for His people. God is the one who is building His church. The remnant are those that the Lord is preserving and keeping for Himself. The remnant are those who we could in some sense call the spiritual seed. If you've been born again, you've been born of the Word of God in your heart and in your soul. The Word of God bearing fruit for faith in the Lord Jesus. The Word of God and the Spirit of God has made you have love and affection for God. Has made you feel ashamed of your sin and desire to end your sinful living. This is a new life from God. God's work has made you a piece of His remnant. God has drawn you to Himself and He has given new life to you. And this life is eternal life. It's not a life that can fade away or that can decay. Why is there a people of God in all ages? Why does the gospel still survive to this day? Why are there still churches where people are teaching God's word and and people are listening to God's word being taught and they're hearing it and they're believing it? Why? Because God is building His church. God is maintaining His church. And so don't despair that Israel, believing Israel, is such a small number. Don't think that God made a promise that He didn't keep. God is keeping His promise. The promise was actually made to Jews and to Gentiles, as Hosea had said, as Isaiah had said. That is the point of these lines here. The point is that God is building His church according to His power and according to His prophecy. God has made and is making and will preserve a remnant for His own name's sake. God isn't going to let the church go away until it is time for the end of the age to come. And isn't it great to realize that unless the Lord had left us a seed, we, had, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah? 
Brothers and sisters, we are not like Sodom and Gomorrah. I believe there are evidences of it all around us. I, I believe that, that we are in a culture that, that wouldn't mind if we were Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you can still be offended by a gross sin because it is offensive to God, if, if you have no desire to participate in the deeds of darkness with the world of darkness, if, if it would make you ashamed and if it would make you fearful of God to be a practicer of those sins that you know God would judge, this is how God is preserving a seed. This is how God is preserving a people for Himself. You see yourself as objects of God's mercy. And one of the huge lessons that that Paul teaches the Christians in Rome here is that God in His almighty and sovereign power is building the church. And we don't have to fear. We don't have to be perplexed about what's not going to happen or about what might happen. We understand that God is in complete control through what is called election and predestination. God is building a church. And and don't be too dismayed about the Ishmaels and about the Esau's and about the Pharaoh's. Don't be too dismayed about them because every one of them, if you could go ask any of them today, don't you love God? Don't you want to serve Him? They will all say no. They will all say no. You who have friends who are unbelievers, and maybe occasionally you you nerve up a little bit and you tell them, you say, God is the Creator and the Judge. And we will be held to account someday. Those friends will say, why do you always talk to me about this garbage? Those friends will say to you, I don't want to hear this. Once in a while, you will have a friend who will be interested and they will engage and they will want to know, but most of them will get mad at you. And you could tell them, listen, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All of our sinful deeds will be revealed before Him. Aren't you afraid to meet Him? If you say that to your friend, what is your friend going to say back to you? They're going to say, shut up. They're going to say, I don't want your religion. Keep it to yourself. And so if God returns tomorrow, are they going to change their mind? No, they're going to be even more mad still because when God returns, it will be to rule with no exception. He is the king. He is the ruler. And yet every day, listen, every day he pleased through the words of his holy scriptures. He warns the world that his wrath is coming. He pleased. I plead with you. Know the gospel. Know what this gospel says. Know the wrath of God and know the mercy of God. Share with people that you love, that you know are on their way to judgment. Share with them. Look, God will show mercy to you if you would repent of your sin. The Lord Jesus must be your righteousness. You have none of your own righteousness. You must put your trust in Christ. You must side with the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then tell them this. He went to the grave. They killed Him. 
and three days later he rose from the grave. I am not making this up. This isn't some fake religion. This is what we call gospel truth. The risen Lord conquered death and by this we know He is the Lord. We know He was preaching to us the truth of eternal life. If you will not repent, you will go to hell. I don't say that because I'm mean. I say that because I love you. I want you to know the truth. I want you to know the way to eternal life. This is the message of Romans chapter 9. This is the hope of the gospel. So I hope, I hope that you're appreciating some of the depth and some of the hardness that we encounter in this book and in this chapter. It is a great chapter. It is an amazing book where we learn about God's mercy for you who would hear Him. Mercy for you who would believe Him. Hear Him. Believe Him and seek Him. Follow Him. Follow this Lord so you will be ready when the end of the age comes. I will get into the last few lines of this. We'll, we will finish this. I, I'm not sure if we will do this next week. Probably not. I, I need to let, let Jim uh, teach what he's planned to teach. If you want to contact me during the week, I would love to uh, be able to visit with you. I, I, I pray for you guys all the time. I really, really miss seeing you guys and uh, appreciate being able to have these mornings with you. Let me just close in prayer with you and I'll just... Uh, Hope that you have a great week in the Lord. Our Father in Heaven, now we thank You and praise You for Your Word. Oh God, we thank You for how clear it is of, of how hardness and how softness and mercy works. Oh God, how I thank You for Your mercies. How we need Your mercies, Lord. We love You and thank You for the Lord Jesus. I pray for this congregation. I pray for my my brothers and sisters, that You would encourage them and challenge them, Lord. Help each one fight their unbelief, Lord. There are many ways where we struggle with unbelief, and I pray that You would help them, Lord. Strengthen Your people. Bring, bring conviction and faith to the lost, Lord. Teach us to fix our eyes on our Savior. God, we pray these things in His great name. Amen.